Amen. So as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and get your Bibles out and open them to Genesis chapter 42. We have a big goal this morning. We are going to cover Genesis chapter 42 through the end of chapter 44. And I promise you, you will be able to go to lunch today. All right? That is, that's my absolute promise. So a big chunk of scripture to cover, but the good news is it's really um, one complete story. As you know, we've been studying uh, the book of Genesis, and, and most recently we've been looking at the life of Joseph. And last week we came uh, to the text in Genesis chapter 41, where God finally fulfilled the promise that he had made to Joseph many, many, many years before. And Joseph found himself going from prison that morning into second in command of all of Egypt before dinner that night. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh established Joseph as the person that was over the entire plan to get the whole uh, country of Egypt or the whole kingdom of Egypt at this time uh, ready for the upcoming famine. That was Joseph's task. He was to get them ready for the upcoming famine. So they had seven years of plenty followed by what would be coming as seven years of terrible, uh, terrible famine. And so Joseph begins to uh, store up. The Bible tells us that he has two sons, and he even makes the statement that because of all the things that God is doing in his life at that moment, that he's beginning to forget about all the things in his past. And that's what is going to be interesting about our text this morning, is in the way that God often does, he brings Joseph uh, face-to-face uh, with his past once more to begin the process of reconciliation with his brothers. You see, Joseph is gonna, not going to see these guys for over 20 years, and they're going to be standing before him in our text today. And so before we get going in this, I just wanted to, to bring up this idea of reconciliation. So I looked up a very basic definition uh, for reconciliation, and it says the act of causing two people or groups to become friendly again after an argument or disagreement, all right? How many of you have been to that place before in your life where you've had to reconcile a relationship with someone, right? Think all the way back in your mind to the very first time that you can remember having to reconcile after a disagreement. For me, uh, the most vivid one in my mind, I, I don't remember a lot of stuff. My wife can remember things from like when she was six months old. Maybe some of you are also like that. I'm not like that. I'm like, I'm like racking my brain. And, and I went back to fifth grade, all right? And that's about as far back as I could go. When I could think of the first major disagreement that I had with somebody, it was Ricky. He was my best friend in all of fourth and fifth grade. And uh, we got into... a major disagreement right before a Valentine's Day party in our elementary school. And if you guys know, that's a big deal, right? A Valentine's Day party is not something that, that you want to miss. And we get not only in a disagreement, we got in a full-fledged fight. Like, I mean, we were, we were throwing blows at each other. And that's how we started that morning. And it put us in a situation where we're sitting across from each other, waiting to go talk to our principal, Right? With our arms folded like, I will never be this guy's friend again. This relationship is over, right? Uh, fast forward about an hour. Uh, we finished the day eating cupcakes together, and we're best friends again. And that's just like how life was for me when I was in, in fifth grade with him. But we, we had to reconcile a relationship. Now, I know that's a silly little story, but it's just to help us illustrate the fact that we are constantly being put in a situation 
where we're reconciling relationships with people around us. And that's a silly one. And I'm well aware of the fact that there's many, many examples in this room that are probably far, far more serious. Just like the one that we're going to look at today. This isn't just uh, some sort of minor disagreement before a Valentine's Day party that two guys can make up over very quickly. Uh, this, this is a major fracture in a relationship experienced by Joseph. If you remember, his brothers plotted to kill him. I mean, it takes a, 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 a lot of hate for somebody to want to take their life away from them. And they hated Joseph so badly that they wished that he would die even at their own hands. And they settled for selling him into slavery. And so they pull him out of this pit that they've thrown him in after they've beating, beaten him. And they sell him to the Ishmaelites who carry him down to Egypt. And as you know, the rest of the story has taken place. And so when he is standing before his brothers today, he has an opportunity before him for genuine reconciliation. He has a decision to make in how this thing plays itself out. So let me pray for us and then we are going to quickly work through these three chapters and then we'll talk about a couple things on, on the back side of this. So, Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much for uh, just the opportunity that we have to be here this morning, God, because you reconciled a relationship with us. God, while we were sinners and we were dead in our sins and we were enemies of yours and we were far from you, God, you did the work required to provide reconciliation for our relationship with you. And we are eternally grateful. Father, I pray that you'll use this text this morning to speak to us very, very clearly. God, and very, very specifically for every single person in this room. God, I don't know what's going on in every single person's life, but you do. And so I pray that you would challenge us with your word. God, and whatever you ask us to do with this this morning, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to be able to act on it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to start out in Genesis chapter 42, and I'm going to read the first six verses, and then I'm going to kind of catch us up to speed on context. All right, so here we go. Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? All right, any dads in the room ever experienced this before? You're, you're looking at your sons going, why, why is everyone just standing around doing this? Like, we're in the middle of a famine. There's one place on the entire earth that has grain, and it's in Egypt. And you guys are just standing here staring at one another. So he's saying, listen, it's time to get to work. You know what needs to be done, so start putting that into action, right? If you're a boss at work or you're a dad or somebody uh, in this situation, you've been here before, and you know how frustrated Jacob probably is. He's like, let's get busy. Start doing what you know that you need to do. Verse 2, and he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten sons of Joseph, or the ten of Joseph's brothers, went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. 
Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So just to set up context a little bit, Jacob's like, listen, we know where we need to go. There's only one place to buy the grain. You need to go ahead and take off to Egypt. But there's a reason why these ten brothers are standing around staring at each other. They do not want to go to Egypt. Anybody know why? Because that's where they sent their brother. And they know this is what's happened in our past. And the last thing that they want to do is go down to Egypt to a place that's going to remind them of all the things that is in the rear view. They don't want to deal with this at all. They're probably uncertain about where Joseph exactly is. And they certainly don't expect him to be the guy that's in charge of this whole thing. But you can, you can see in this story that there's a reason why they don't want to go down to Egypt. But because dad says we need to do this or else we're going to die, they, they go ahead and head down. And if you read the text, we see that Jacob still has not learned his lesson. He's still showing favoritism. He says, listen, all of you go down but leave Benjamin here because I don't want anything to happen to baby brother, right? So you guys take the long journey. You guys get all the grain. You guys do all the work. You bring it all back so that we might live and not die. I'm just not going to send Benjamin because I'm afraid that something might happen to him. So you see how the whole story here is setting up. And in verse 6, it says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Remember, last week we studied that God was beginning the process of fulfilling the purpose that he had in Joseph's life from the very beginning. And if you remember the dreams that Joseph had. What was it that his brothers were doing in those dreams? They were bowing down before him. And we see right here in this text, God is continuing to accomplish the purposes that he had set out from the very beginning. So his brothers show up and they've bowed down before him. Now, for the sake of, of, of text this morning, uh, we'll pick up reading here in verse 21, but I want to catch you guys up to speed and summarize this real fast. So the Bible tells us in this section that Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. All right, And the reason why they don't recognize him is because it's been over 20 years since they last saw him, which is a long time. If you think in your mind, if you've ever met up with somebody that you haven't seen in over 20 years, think of like going back to your high school reunion or something, right? And you're seeing people and you're like, man, I almost wouldn't have recognized that guy. I haven't seen him in so long, or I almost didn't recognize that lady. That's, that's one of the reasons. But the second reason here is because of his appearance now. His appearance is one of an Egyptian and not of a young Hebrew guy. Remember, they shaved their heads and they shaved their faces. There's absolutely no hair left because that's where they, the expectation was in Egypt to be very clean cut. So he's, he's dressed like a leader. He's very clean cut. And they haven't seen him in over 20 years. So the Bible says that they do not recognize him. But Joseph has the advantage here because he recognizes them. And he sees them bowing down before him here. So the Bible tells us that he speaks harshly to them, right? And he accuses them in the text here of being spies. And he says, listen, I think that you've come here to check out the land of Egypt because we're the only place on the face of the earth that has the grain that you need. And you're coming down to see our weaknesses. You're trying to spy on us. You're trying to figure out what you can do to, to overthrow us and take control. 
And his brothers begin to reason with him and say, my Lord, we are not spies. We haven't come here to take control of this whole thing. And they use the word honest men. We are but honest men. And they don't know who they're talking to in this moment. So think about this for a second. Again, Joseph has the advantage here. And here's these guys. They're going, listen, listen, we are not spies. We're not what you accuse us. We're, we're brothers. We're honest men. We, we don't mean any harm to anyone, right? And Joseph's going, yeah, right, about 20-something years ago, I might have thought that. But now today, with you standing before me, uh, I don't think that at all. So he accuses them again, uh, of, of being spies, and he begins to require of them uh, that they would leave one of the brothers there, return home, get their youngest brother, who he knows is Benjamin, and bring them back to Egypt so that they would be able to prove their story, that they would be able to prove that they were, in fact, brothers and that they weren't spies. And we know the backstory here is Joseph really is just wanting to see how Benjamin's doing, right? Go get Benjamin. I want to see the whole family, but this is the way that he goes about it. So he requires of them to leave Simeon. And then we pick up in verse uh, 21 in this story. So they are, they are getting ready to head back in verse 21. It says, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. That's Joseph. After hearing what Reuben says, he turns and weeps. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. All right? So Joseph sets up this whole plan. He says, I want you to go back and get your brother, and, and I want to keep something here to, to make sure that you'll return. So I want one of you to stay, and he chooses Simeon. I believe he chooses Simeon in this, in this uh, story here because the most likely candidate would have been Reuben. Because Reuben was the oldest brother, and therefore Reuben would have been in charge of the whole situation. So Joseph could have cast all the blame on Reuben that this is why I'm in this situation. But when Joseph hears the story of the brothers, he hears Reuben give his account of the story and realizes that maybe Reuben was one of the only ones that was for me in this situation. So he allows Reuben to go home with the other brothers, carrying all of his grain, and he chooses Simeon, which would be the next one in line, the next one that could have done something about the past. And so he makes Simeon stay here. So the boys, they travel all the way home, and they begin to give Jacob a report of everything that happens. And at this point, Jacob is very upset, right? And he's upset because of several things. Number one... He's upset that they told them about Benjamin, and now they're requiring Benjamin to come back. So that makes Jacob very angry. And then he's also angry that they left Simeon there. And, and basically, he's like, listen, absolutely not. Benjamin cannot go to Egypt. I will not let him go. And, and Jacob says 
So now I've lost Simeon. So he's just like, listen, sorry. He just gives up on the guy. I mean, that's, that's terrible to think of like the kind of the family dynamics in this relation, or, you know, relationship again of these brothers and their, their dad and how much favoritism's here. I'd hate to be the other brothers, right? He's like, well, he's, he's gone. I don't want to risk sending Benjamin, my, you know, my, my favorite uh, over there. So we're going to miss Simeon. You know, we're going to miss him. Uh, and, and that's how he kind of leaves it concluding chapter 42. So they know the deal. Jacob knows what it, re- what it is going to require if they ever need grain again. They cannot get grain again unless Benjamin goes with them. And so look at 40, chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So I don't know exactly how much time has passed. But it's been a while. And they've been able to use up all this grain. And the first thing that popped in my mind is, how long did they just leave Simeon there? Who knows what's been going on with this guy and how much time has passed. But at some point... They run out of food because the famine doesn't relent. It doesn't stop. So they're not able to get back on their feet again. So they're in this position of needing more food. So Jacob says, listen, you're going to have to go back to Egypt. And Judah stops him. And Judah says, listen, Dad, I hear what you're saying, but you know what that means, right? There's no way that we can go stand before this guy and get the grain that we need without bringing Benjamin. So it's going to require you to be willing to send him. And so Judah says, send him with me and I will vow my own life for his. Basically, he's saying if anything happens to him, it, I'll make sure that it's, it's my life. I, I'll volunteer as, as tribute for him, if you will, in this circumstance. So the boys head back to Egypt. They head back to Egypt, and the Bible tells us that they, they come and to meet with Joseph again, still not knowing who he is, and Joseph, recognizing them and seeing them with Benjamin, tells his guys, I want you to go and start preparing a meal because I'm going to invite them to my house today. And so they begin to prepare the meal, and we'll pick up in verse 26. It says, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house... To him the present that they had with them and bowed down to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? He just wants a report about how's dad doing. Of course, they don't know this, but Joseph is concerned about his well-being. Verse 28, they said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And honestly, guys, as I'm reading through this text uh, this week, I just can't help but think, like, I have no idea. The Bible says over and over again that Joseph controls himself and that he steps out of their presence and he weeps in, in different times, but I have no idea how he's able to keep himself together in these situations. 
I mean, to think about this, everything that you've been through, everything your brother's put you through, and now to be standing face to face with them, and even getting to see Benjamin, he must have been overwhelmed with emotion in this. But the Bible tells us that he controls himself until he can't. So look at verse 30. Then Joseph hurried out, and I want you to catch this, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chambers and he wept there. Verse 31, then he washed his face and he came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and then them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. And portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's uh, portion was five times as much of any of theirs. It's like a middle school boy eating pizza there while the rest of the family is, is eating normal portions. He's got five times the amount, and they drank and were merry with him. So think about this. Picture this in your mind. This is Joseph's opportunity here. He's in charge of everything. Whatever Joseph says goes. And he's got his brothers right where he wants them, right? And the Bible tells us that what he, what he gives them is not retribution, is not anger, but it's compassion. And it really jumps out to you as you read this, this text that, man, the last thing that these guys deserved was compassion from Joseph. But yet that's what... They receive, and it says that he lines them up at this table, and they eat together, and they drink together, and they're merry. But the, the beautiful picture of all this and this whole story of reconciliation is this imagery we have of these guys dining with Joseph when they didn't deserve to even be there. It's a picture of us and God the Father, the idea that we as sinners would be invited to the table of the king, of the one in charge, and to be guest, unworthy and undeserving of any kind of compassion and grace and mercy, and yet receive it abundantly. It's an amazing picture of God's goodness towards us and God's mercy and grace towards us. And we see it playing out in this image of Joseph and his brothers. They eat together. The Bible even goes so far as to say that he eats with them. The other Egyptians wouldn't even eat with them because it was an abomination to eat with these Hebrews. So not only did they not deserve to be there, but what, it didn't make any sense that he would be willing to even eat with them or associate with them. And again, back to that imagery of God, that God does that to us. There's no reason that makes any sense that God would associate with us or want to include us into this. And yet this is the picture that we see from this text. Let's continue on to chapter 44. Chapter 44, verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and 44. This is where the story takes a little bit of a turn. Verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. Verse 4. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And Joseph said to his steward, Up, 
follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? So like I said, the story begins to take a little bit of a turn here. Joseph, Joseph's tested these guys a little bit with, with asking them to bring their brother back, and they were willing to do that. And then they were celebrating and eating together, and he demonstrated unbelievable grace and compassion towards them. But he still is wondering, are these guys the same guys that they used to be? So he puts them under one final test. And this is the test that he comes up with. He says to his steward, I want you to pack up all their gear and all their stuff and all their grain, and I want you to send them on their way. And I want you to take my silver cup, and I want you to go hide it in the belongings of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And then, when they're away from the city, I want you to catch up with them, and then I want you to tell them that something's been stolen. And then he comes up with this deal that whoever is found to have the cup Will be their life will be required of them, and everybody else can go free. And so the brothers agree to this with the steward, and as the steward begins to go through each man's pack, he starts with the oldest, so nothing's in Reuben's. He goes to Simeon, nothing's in there, and he works his way down the line of all the brothers. And so far, they haven't found anything, and you know that these guys are just hoping beyond hope that please don't find that cup in Benjamin's bag. Please, like Dad is going to be very upset, right? That's an understatement. It's the only one of us that, that this is going to matter so much to our father about. And sure enough, where do they find it? They find it in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. And so the test that Joseph has laid out before them is to see if these brothers are the same men that they used to be 20-something years ago or to find out has something changed in them? Has God begun to work and move in their lives in ways that he's moved and worked in Joseph's life? And maybe, just maybe, they're not the same guys that they used to be. And if you read in verse 13, jump down to verse 13 because it, it gives you a picture here. It says, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Sounds like different guys to me. Guys who were willing to beat their brother, to throw him in a pit, to, to come up with a plot to murder him and ultimately sell him into slavery, to now men who are tearing their clothes and weeping and mourning over what might become of their brother Benjamin. Little bit different guys. And then Judah himself steps to the table and he asks to meet with Joseph and he says to Joseph, listen, this, this brother of ours, he, he's, he's special. He means a great deal to my father. And he explains the whole story to Joseph. And when he gets done explaining the story to Joseph, he tells Joseph that, that I have made a deal with my father. And would you consider a new deal? And look at verse 32. We're going to read what that new deal is on behalf of Judah. On Judah. Verse 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my 
father. So we see a major change in the lives of these brothers. They are weeping and mourning and tearing their clothes over what's happening to Benjamin. And Judah is so moved that he meets with Joseph to say, listen, I will trade places with him. Let me stay and let him go, and I will stay in your service forever if you would just allow him to walk free. It's a beautiful picture to me of the gospel and Jesus' role in, in, in the good news, right? It, it's the substitutionary atonement that we're seeing here. It's what Christ has done on all of our behalf. I will take the punishment on myself that he deserves if you would simply let him walk free and not have to endure what he's about to endure. And so we're going to find out next week. I don't want to go any further, but we're going to find out next week how the rest of this story plays out. But there's three very, very quick things, very, very quick things that I want to bring to our attention. These are our components to God's redemptive process that we see throughout this text, these three chapters. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Remember, we needed reconciled back to God, and we see Three components to that redemptive process right here. The first one being that these brothers were confronted with their sin. They were confronted with their sin. From the very onset of chapter 42, they were confronted with their sin. As soon as Jacob said, you guys need to go down to Egypt, their hearts sank. You know their minds went crazy. They're thinking, man, oh man, there is no place I would rather you know, go than, or I would rather go anywhere is what I'm trying to say than, than to Egypt, right? Because immediately they're confronted with their past and the things that they had done. And all throughout this story, we see that they're confronted with their sin. In fact, they say that that's why we're experiencing the hardship that we are. God, God is, he, he's wanting blood for this. God knows what we've done in our past. And they're confronted with their sin in a way that God is not going to let them just walk away from it. It's over and over and over again. Much like the process that God puts all of us in this room through. At some point in our lives, before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, God confronted us with our sin. And an even more detailed process begins to take place. Because we are confronted with our sin to accomplish three primary things. The first one is this, that we would admit who we are. Admit who you are. You remember a couple chapters ago when God said that to Jacob when they wrestled? Who are you? What's your name? It's not that God doesn't know Jacob's name. It's God was wanting Jacob to admit out loud who he was because his name meant deceiver. And by saying it out loud, he was admitting that that is who I am. I am a deceiver. So God confronts us with our sins so that we would first and foremost admit who we are and realize that maybe we really aren't as good as we thought we were. And for many years, I served as a pastor in Alabama. And we used to always joke about the fact that, not really a joke, it's honestly heartbreaking, but we would often say that, that the people there, we would have to get them lost before we could get them saved. Because there was just a cultural Christianity that permeated there where everybody was just a pretty good person. You know? They were seeking to be a good dad and, and the moms. They just wanted to be the best mom and wife they could be. And, and they all paid their taxes and they were good neighbors. And they would bring you pies when you moved in. And they would do all of those things. Just pretty decent folks, right? But the Bible paints a very different picture for all of us in this world. The Bible says that no one is good, no, not one. And that we would be deceiving ourselves to think that way. 
And I remember very, very vividly sitting down one week to talk to a young man about baptism. His mom called me and said, uh, he wants to come up and meet with you about being baptized. And I'm so excited. I'm like, absolutely. So he comes into my office and we sit down and he and mom are sitting there. And I asked him, share with me your story a little bit. Before we talk about baptism, just tell me about you coming to Saving Faith in Christ. I want to hear your testimony. And he could hardly articulate anything about uh, coming to Saving Faith with Christ, which was kind of a red flag to me. But, so I'm, I'm just kind of helping him walk through it like, okay, so, but, but has there ever been a time in your life when, when you admitted that you were a sinner? Well, you know, I don't know. I've just always kind of been good and always just kind of know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about like, has there ever been that time where you just admitted that you were a sinner? And, and it was like we were beating around. And so I begin to explain it. Listen, the Bible tells us that no one is good. No, not one. Every single person that's ever lived is a sinner and in desperate need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's your only hope. And as I'm sharing this with him, his mother stops me and says, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just jump in right here. And she looks at her son, and I'm not making this story up. She looks at her son, and she says, I want you to know that I don't agree with what he's saying. And that you are a good boy. And my heart began to break. What a disservice you've done to that young man and for that young man. To look him in the face and tell him that he's a good boy. He may do some good things. All of us are capable of doing some good things occasionally, right? But he is not a good boy. The Bible says that he, I'm not saying that. Pastor Jeremy isn't the one making that accusation. This makes that accusation. That you are not a good boy. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be. That Jesus was on your behalf. And it just broke my heart in that moment where God was confronting him with his sin and wanting him to admit who he was and admit that he was a sinner. And we put all that on pause to just puff him up and remind him of how great he was. That's anti-gospel. But we're confronted with our sins so that we would first admit who we are. Secondly, that we would accept responsibility and confess our sins. Specifically. These brothers got to a place where they're going, listen, not only do we know that we're wretched people, but we know exactly what it is that we've done that we need to confess. Not some just broad general thing that we're, we're bad people. right? No, we tried to kill our brother. We threw him in a pit. We beat him half to death. We sold him into slavery. There's some very specific things that we need to confess here. And that's what it's doing. It's bringing them on this journey. When God confronts us with our sin, it's to force us to admit who we really are. It's to lead us to a place of confessing what we've actually done. And again, nobody likes admitting that. Just go out on these streets and ask people. And they'll tell you all the time, I'm a good person. Nobody likes confessing when they've done wrong. You should see our, our little Blakely. Even at three and four years old, telling her, you did wrong to somebody, now apologize. And she just melts with, with frustration. She does not want to sit there and apologize to you. Why? Because in apologizing, I'm confessing and admitting who I am and what I've done wrong. And I don't want to deal with that. But you see it take place, and it's a necessary process for us to come to saving faith in Christ. And third under this, when we're confronted with sin, God, God confronts us with our sins so that we would be led to a place of surrender. To give up. To wave the white flag. To get to that place where we recognize that, God, there is literally nothing that Jeremy can do 
to change my situation. My only hope for salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that is it. Not how many times I've gone to church, not if I teach Sunday school, not anything other than do I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and has he forgiven me of my sin? So the first thing that God does in this story and in our lives is he confronts us with our sin. The second thing, though, the good news of the story is that he meets us with grace and mercy. Right in the moment where we deserve the biggest punishment that we can possibly get, God hands us the opposite. I like using the the definitions for mercy and grace. Mercy being somebody withholding something that you deserve. You get in trouble. You deserve to be grounded. Your parents withhold grounding from you. That's, that's mercy. But God, God goes a step further. He comes in with grace. Grace is not only withholding what you deserve, but giving you what you don't deserve. It's like, hey, what you deserve is to be grounded all day, but instead I'm going to take you to worlds of fun. That makes no sense, right? And that's true. That's why the gospel is so amazing. It's why we should never get over it. Even those of us in this room that are going, listen, I've heard this a million times. I get it, I get it. God died for me on the cross. God, I pray that we never have that attitude. As believers, we need to wake up every single morning and preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of who we used to be and the fact that we're still capable of being that wretched sinner every single day. And despite all of that, God still loves you. That God would still love you. There's a Shane and Shane song out there called Psalm 46. Check it out if you get a chance. It's an unbelievable song. It really gave us a lot of encouragement through this whole pandemic and all that. But it talks about the sovereignty of God and him being in control of every situation. There's a line in that song that says, you know the hearts of men and you still let us live. That is grace and mercy. When you come to the knowledge and the understanding that God would have been just as glorified in sending every single person to the hell that they deserved as he would be dying on the cross to provide salvation, man, that is an overwhelming thought. And it makes me stop and just thank God for all that he's done on my half because he didn't have to do it. And I definitely didn't deserve it. But he meets us with mercy and grace, just like Joseph does in the story with his brothers. He could have done anything he wanted to these guys. And yet he's filled with compassion and gives them what they don't deserve and celebrates with them in a meal. The third thing, the third thing that we see in this, in this redemptive process is transformation. Transformation. Let me just simply ask it in a question. How do you know today that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that you will be in heaven with him for all eternity? I hope that you could answer with something recent. And not just when I was 11, I prayed some prayer and then I got baptized because the Bible makes it very clear that if we are in Christ, that we are a new creation And we are transformed on a day-to-day basis. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. And you will never be perfect this side of heaven. But you should look a lot more like Jesus today than you did yesterday and six months ago and 20 years ago. And if the only thing that you're hanging on to this 
then you might want to do some evaluating because that's what the whole book of 1 John is about. 1 John 5.13, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And what does he write? He writes a whole list of things that are evident in our life, that there's fruit, something you can point to and go, that's how I know that I have a relationship with Christ. Not because I prayed a prayer when I was 16 on a mission trip in Mora's, Mexico. No, because yesterday... God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was working in my life, and I love people in a way that I used to not love them. And I have a desire to be in God's Word in a way that I used to not have. And I'm able to show compassion to people, even people that I, would, I used to wouldn't have never showed compassion to. People who think different than me and act different than me, maybe even are from a different political party than me. That I can... I can show and prove out that, that I have a relationship with Christ and it's all through transformation. God will not let you continue on the way that you are. He will conform you into the image of his son. That's what the Bible tells us. And through that is a process of transformation where you no longer look like the person you used to. And thank, thank you, God, that that's the case. 36-year-old Jeremy isn't 16-year-old Jeremy. And I've still got a long ways to go. And God knows. And so does Aaron and my kids. And you guys will too. But God is doing something in my life. And that's how I know that I have assurance of my faith. Because at some point in my life, God confronted me with my sin. And said, this is who you are. In light of who I am. And he met me in that place with grace and mercy and gave to me as a free gift eternal life, not because I deserved it, but because he loved me that much. And since that day, he's begun to transform me and change me and to form me into a new creation. That's the picture of the gospel. That's what I want to invite you into this morning. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the same offer that was on the table for me and everybody else in this room is on the table for you. And God wants you to know that you are not good and you are a sinner. But like I said before, you don't have to be because it all hinges on him. His finished work on the cross, the perfect life that he lives, and now he gives you the opportunity to be partakers with him in that freely. All the Bible says you have to do is confess Jesus as Lord and, con and confess your sins and ask him to forgive your sins and be Lord of your life. You can do that right here this morning. The same is true for all of us in this room. Like I said before, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and for some of you, you've followed Jesus faithfully for longer than I've even been alive. But never grow tired of hearing the good news of the gospel. And never forget who you are. Never, ever forget who God is and what he's done for you. So this morning, I just invite you to a time of worship. We're going to respond here. Roy and Jerome's going to come up here in just a second and lead us in a song. And I pray that you would sing out this song in a way that you didn't even before we, we started tonight or this morning. Because of, of the reminder of what God's done on your behalf. That you would celebrate that. For some of you in this room, that confession of sin is an ongoing process. It's something that we all do as Christians on a daily basis. We're already guaranteed the forgiveness for it.
but God still wants to continue to work on our hearts and our minds. And so we confess it to him and we lay it at his feet. So maybe that's you. You need to just spend some time this morning here in confession and prayer. We're going to sing, we're going to sing one time through this song. If you need to respond, you come. And then when we're done with this, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper to be reminded one last time of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But you respond now. Would you stand and join us? Let's sing this verse. This time, I'd invite you to go ahead and, and have a seat right where you're at. We have the opportunity to conclude our service this morning in a very fitting way. We have the opportunity to observe the Lord's table together, to be reminded once again all that Christ has done on our behalf. And so before we participate in this this morning, I want to remind you that this is open to anybody that has a relationship with Christ. We, we participate in an open communion here at Fellowship Olathe. That simply means you don't have to be a member of our church, but we do ask that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in order to participate. And it's not too late to grab the elements. If you came in this morning and you didn't have a chance to get this and you would like to participate with us, we've got deacons right here in the back ready to get one of these to you. If you would just slip up your hand wherever you're at, we'll make sure that you have one of these to be able to participate with us. So right now, if you need that, go ahead and slip your hand up. If not, go ahead and start working on this. Uh, it, it takes a little bit of practice if you're not familiar with these, but if you would just start with the top, there's a clear little uh, plastic thing on the top that if you take that off first, it goes way smoother. I learned that the hard way the first time. So that, that exposes the bread, and then if you would peel back the foil, that opens up the cup for the juice. And before we we partake and before we pray I wanted to read to you 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 because I think it so beautifully summarizes what we've talked about this morning from the New Testament chapter 5 verses 17 through 21 it says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away and behold the new has come all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For the sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a powerful, powerful picture of what God has done on our behalf. That God reconciled us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. And it goes on to tell us that he's even given us the continued work of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. So at this time, I'm going to ask uh, Jamian if you would come and, and pray over the elements this morning, and then we will partake. Father God, as I come before you this morning in this meeting place, we just ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, that you would take first our feelings, then open our lives so that we can be reconciled to one another. In this meeting place, we give you glory, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Will you take the bread? Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. The same chapter, verses 27 and 28, it said, When he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Before I close in prayer, I just want to remind you one last time that this Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in this section, it finished out with this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. There are those that are unable to participate with us here this morning in the Lord's Supper because they don't yet know Christ. That's the ministry that God's given to every single one of us in this room. The ministry of reconciliation that he would make his appeal to them through us. That's an incredible responsibility. So I pray that we take it serious this week and we would go out with boldness in every conversation that we have. Let me pray for us and then we will be dismissed this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your word. God, not just your word, but what you've done on our behalf, God. That while we were dead in our sins and hopeless, God, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you through the work of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for his perfect life lived. Where we fall short, God, he, he met the, the bar of perfection. God, I thank you for his death on the cross. I thank you for his resurrection so that we could have eternal life. Father, I pray that you'd remind us this week as we go out these doors, God, there are many, many people in this world, this lost and dying world that do not know you. Give us boldness and quickness to share the good news of Christ with them. God, make your appeal through us this week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.